Hello everyone and welcome back to A Pint With Peter, an informative and at the moment very music heavy podcast. I must apologise for the slight delay, well big delay, in bringing you the first podcast episode of 2024. The month seems to slip away from me. It's been a whirlwind month but we're back and we're kicking off the year with a riveting chat about the value of concert tickets. So everyone, let's get back to it. Going back to that period, I, I'm, I'm quite unusual in a way, probably quite nerdish. I mean, I, I don't have a diary or a journal for every year of my life, but somewhere I've probably got some notes. And um, I was looking, this will give you an, an idea of what was going on at the time. I was looking through my you know, 77 to 81 diaries where I, I wish I would have kept the tickets those tickets to gigs are quite valuable, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. I was in um, a high-end charity shop the other day that also deals in vinyl. And they had a, a Pink Floyd album. And they had, along the Pink Floyd album, which I reckon I know, could have been worth 30 quid or whatever. It was, it was quite, quite, a, quite an unusual one. It had the concert ticket where they would have been showcasing the songs on that album. And it's also had a little booklet. You know, merch hadn't taken off as much as you guys know it. But because you had the album and the booklet and the ticket, they were what? This is a charity shop. They were asking for 120 quid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Alex just dug up a load of her old gig tickets. Wow. I've got, I've got a load as well of my old ones. Uh, Wow, so keep them. Keep no, I, I think yeah. me and Charlotte Bindle yeah. hours. Because yeah. remember, I used to have them all stuck up on the wall. Wow, in my room. wow, wow, keep them. They're a little piece of cultural history. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe not yeah. with most bands, but I know. Yeah. Alex, what was one of the big bands you saw? Jerry and the Pacemakers. Even if it was a pop group. Spice Girls, did you see Spice Girls? Yeah, I mean, even a Spice Girls oh, ticket yeah, might sure, yeah, sure. an avid collector. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a shame that it's all like QR codes and you're putting them up yeah. at home now. That's true. And that, and that I think, is why LPs, I'll, go, I'll tell you more later, are now actually outselling all other media. That's actually true, that, Chris. That's quite, yeah. quite upset me now. I was like, oh, it's just the way the time is yeah, well, going. Yeah, well, you, well you've, got, you've got something out of this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my friend in Australia who was in the record business, hence why if anyone listens to these podcasts and they say, oh, this guy went to a lot of bloody concerts, didn't he? How did he manage that? It's because my best friend was in the business. They all the time were given freebies. They were given, obviously, vinyl. They were given tapes. They were given tickets they're given all sorts of shit actually you'd be surprised because back in back, i'm not going to go there but back in the 70s you had this idea of payola in other words if if you wanted your record to sell you could go to certain sources and basically bribe them and pretend that all these records had been sold that actually hadn't been so are you with me yeah all that kind of stuff was going on so just to paint a picture for you this is a little snapshot of what what i was doing in that 77 to 81 period may the 22nd 1977 saw the ramones support act talking heads at the electric circus wow talking heads who i'd like to spend a whole podcast on were quite small then they weren't really well known the ramones were massive 
Do you know the Ramones? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because no. we, I started a podcast with the Hey Ho. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you seem to know it, yeah? Well, I mean, even that's used now for that commercial company, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah they're called AO, aren't A-O. they? Yeah. Wow. So all wow. their adverts, yeah. it's this punk yeah. song. Yeah. Let's go. That's what I mean. I mean, if you can get any kind of recognition nowadays, even for stuff that you produced 30, 40, 50 years ago, you, you know, the money you can get from it is mm. astonishing, isn't it? That was 77. That was the Electric Circus, which was a massive uh, punk and later, if you want, new wave gig. Uh, blah, blah, blah. 1979, I was at um, the Rum Runner. That's in Birmingham, yeah? I also used to go to another place called Barbarella's. Now, both these places in Birmingham became very, very hip during the Duran Duran era. Because most music, as you know, most pop music, you think Liverpool, don't you? All the great bands that come out of Liverpool. Obviously, London is disproportionately important. Then you've got Manchester, which which has always been pretty important. But... um, you know, the claim to fame of Birmingham, you obviously, because I'm a West Midlander, you, you had the, um, the heavy metal connection with Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, blah, blah. Earlier than that, you had Spencer Davis and so on, and uh, Moody Blues, I, I think. But um, the Rum Runner became the kind of base of Duran Duran. Yeah, Duran Duran were massive around that time. Funnily enough, around that era, why I mention this is I saw a band called Mountain, who um, were basically heavy rock, I think. Andy Funley, you know, my friend in America, was saying, oh, I met this guy in a cafe the other day. He used to play bass for Mountain. I mean, why why I mentioned Mountain is, as I've mentioned it before, I had a lovely girlfriend at the time called Jean. Jean was lovely. She had fantastic blonde <laughs> hair. And, uh, what was her breast size? Oh, like, wow. Like that's wow, that's wow, what he's picturing, wow. Chris. Well, Barney used to call her my little bourgeois dove. <laughs> yeah, my little bourgeois dove. So you know what a dove looks like, don't you, with its chest, <laughs> with its plumage. But um, the only reason I mention the glorious G. Electric Circus, all those places, I was explaining to you, they're scuzzy, aren't they? You know the term scuzzy? I mean, I've been to gigs where the floors, all the classic traits of of shitholes, basically, the floor would be sticky with booze. The the crowd, I think health and safety regulations weren't as tight. The walls would literally be running with something. I mean, people describe it as the walls running with sweat. I I don't know what it was, but have have you been to gigs where... you, can you relate to these? I think it's more. It was sticky floors. Sticky yeah. floors. I sticky floors. To. Yeah, sticky carpets. I feel like I relate it more to clubs than gig gig venues. That's the whole point. During this era, I think stadium rock and the bigger venues took off. Don't forget in the seventies and eighties in Manchester, you wouldn't have had MEN or anything like that. A lot of the acts I saw would have been at the Apollo, where I used to go with you and your sister to introduce you, to blood you to various new bands. Yeah, with Mountain, I took Jean along, and at the end of it, I'm not even sure we saw the whole of the gig. She looked so flustered, and she was fed up with being pushed and shoved. And generally harassed. Basically said to me, I'm never going to anything like that again. And basically, there's a kind of implication, I'm chucking you as well. And I don't, know, I don't care how good the Mother's Club is in this place, I'm, I'm off. She became a massive Stevie Wonder fan. Mm. Yeah, she went into the soft kind of funkier kind of uh, 
by because I've always been basically um, I suppose indie and alt when it comes down to it I think you describe them as punk but maybe they were heading to post-punk they were a little bit more uh, subtle I saw the buzzcocks at the free trade hall is that shut down now? it's a hotel yeah, it's a hotel now, right. What I'm painting a picture for you here is that's a four-year period. I saw the Ramones talking heads. I saw a mountain, which are basically heavy rock. And this is what finished it for me. Um, this would be 81, where I was heading, if you want, for my 30th birthday. This is what I want to ask you in a minute. I think I think your 30th birthday can be quite crucial. A friend of mine who was also heading towards, I think he probably was, he was a bit older than me, he was 30. He said, um, oh, do you want to come down to London? There's a gig on at the Finsbury Rainbow. I don't know if you've heard of the Finsbury no. Rainbow. Yeah, that, that's a really big, you can probably buy books that are just about gigs at the Finsbury Rainbow. But you guess who was playing it was um grateful dead oh. you remember grateful dead yeah wow wow grateful dead i mean they were the uber hippies if you were into the west coast sound you know back in the 60s and early 70s and if you were into smoking dope and stuff i mean grateful dead were really laid back I remember going to watch it and uh, my friend at the time, he was called Harry. I wanted to really enjoy it for him. And do you know how many songs they played that night? I think they played on and on and on. They played 24 songs. Wow. 24 songs and they went kind of droning on and on at the end of it. I thought, mm, it's time for a change here, mate, is, isn't it? I, I, know, I just don't like that kind of music anymore. Um, I mean... Going back to punk, I've got a lovely album to show you here. If you think of, you know how punk was very um, amphetamine based? I think if you're looking at a lifespan, I reckon punk was born in, say, 75. And I think punk was in its death throes in 77, 78. You know, the whole thing was dissipating. It was heading literally towards uh, dissolution. So if you're using an amphetamine analogy... I think when punk began, that was like the high. Do you know what I mean? That was like the high. Then it, then that high kind of continued. But I think 78 was the year of come down. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, the Pistols, they did struggle on. They did struggle on with the usual chaos. Remember in the last broadcast, we talked about the gigs being cancelled either through illness, drug-related probably, or police or local authority pressure yeah, yeah it, it was the end they flirted with america sex pistols even with south america i don't know if you can see that chris can you see that i can i picked this up the other day this is a real piece of punk rock history as you can see you've got uh, there's no johnny rotten there's no sid vicious that i'll come on to in a minute you've got jones here what's he got on his head an it SS looks like an ss him. cap and a bit of a leather jacket then you've got Steve Cook, the drummer, original. Then here, this is a guy called Ronnie Biggs. I mean, look at it. The guy's wearing swimming trunks, and it looks like he's got a pair of women's panties on his head. Yeah? And he's, do you know who Ronnie Biggs was? name does really ring a bell. He sounds like a bank robber. Yeah. Very good, yeah. He's one of the great train robbers. Oh, he was, yeah. I was going to say. Great train robber. And he... he he absconded to South America. So they were trying to build up a kind of a connection, a link between him and the band. This is the good... I, I should remember what this guy's real name was. Here in the background, playing bass on here, it's got Borman. 
Yeah, I'm not going to go into Third Reich history, but Bormann was a leading Nazi. And again, what's the guy wearing? German. I was going to say, is it another SS yeah, uniform? Yeah, full SS uniform. So you've got The Biggest Blow, A Punk Prayer by Ronnie Biggs. Cost me a tenner, this is great value. And on the back, okay. here it goes. It's got Sex Pistols, My Way, Sid Vicious. As in the Frank Sinatra song. As in the Frank Sinatra song. That's actually, I, I'm, I might be wrong. It's certainly in the top 20. <laughs> certainly in the top 20. Was it like a cover, as you would use the term? Was it his version of the song? No, it's his version. Yeah, I mean, Chris is probably looking it up now, but... um, It's probably a cover, because yeah, like the, the Fall Out Boy song at the beginning is a cover, but it's a reworking. Yeah. Oh, a rework. yeah. Call it a reworking. Yeah. yeah. Maybe but, Dad but, doesn't know the term, Chris. But Sid, Sid Vicious was, if you want, the new bassist for the Sex Pistols. And uh, he had a girlfriend called Nancy Spungen. And they were very, very close, funnily enough. They, they were in love. And they had a, their, their best friend was a, another girl called Jordan Mooney. I've got a picture of there, Jordan. Can you see that? I mean, she was really, really interesting character, Jordan. She I could, looks it. I could maybe spend a minute talking about Jordan. But... Um, what happened was, I don't know how much you know about your Sex Pistols history, but Spungen was murdered yeah. by Sid Vicious. Oh. Yeah. Nancy Spungen was actually found dead in some kind of drug-crazed, you know, horrible incident. And uh, in October, later in the year, you had the death of Sid Vicious from a heroin overdose after he'd been charged with murder. Well, they did a film about it, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, of course it's they Sid did, and Nancy. Yeah. Yeah, Sid and Nancy, Nancy, which I'd like to, well, I'm not being perverse here, I'd like to watch it, but um, it's a really, really interesting episode. And up here, around that time, uh, McLaren was putting together, Jordan was in this film, by the way, a film called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which is really interesting. I know Chris is into film. You can actually get copies of this film called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. McLaren at the time, funnily enough, he, he was uh, getting over to the States and he brought over here uh, a kind of elements of hip hop and, and stuff like that. It's a lovely um, song. I think it's called Buffalo Girls, something like that. Check it out. It, he was still going. But Jordan, interesting lady, if I can just have a departure. This is the obituary for Jordan Mooney. I'm going to link this in with you guys being 30, by the way. You, you're going to like this. Jordan was, I'm not sure where Seaford is. Do you know where Seaford is? Do you know where Seaford is, Chris? Is, is, um, is it in Essex? Yeah, I think so. I do recognise well, she, the name. She came from, I don't, I don't know you describe it as a middle class background, but she came from quite a decent background. She came to notoriety. She used to travel each day from Seaford into London. It's just outside Eastbourne, so it's. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. So just and she used to travel on the train, and she basically used to wear um, a, a net skirt with tattered black stockings and suspenders underneath. This is a real times term, but she was innocent of underwear. Oh. <laughs> and apparently, the, you know, the whole carriage uh, was in uproar. You had city gents pretending to read their paper. And uh, apparently at one point you had a braying mob who tried to throw her off the train. And in the interests of public safety, British Rail gave her her own first class compartment. Oh, not bad. I might have eh? to try that when I'm going yeah. to London next time. Would, would oh, wait you... a minute, that's another term that I'm going to rob. 
And wow. today I am innocent of underwear. In, innocent of underwear, <laughs> yeah. So she, um, this is where it gets interesting. After Sid Vicious and Nancy had basically killed themselves, she became really disillusioned with that scene. And she went on, interestingly, to uh, manage Adam and the Ants. Joe oh. Adam and the Ants, yeah, sure. She was actually responsible for the the Native American vibe and. I don't know why random turn of events. I remember Chris, one of our old head teachers, was a former punk, wasn't she? Oh right. Mrs. Beer. Yeah. I, I I remember her doing an assembly where she showed an old picture of herself. Wow. Wow. And then you know she did you know spiked up blonde yeah. hair. Yes, I do remember this. Yeah. And then of course, like I think she was like deputy head, wasn't she? That was a very brave move. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? And she became head, and she became head teacher. Yeah. I, I don't no. know why. I think t- hearing the disillusionment of punk triggered that in my yeah. brain. And it yeah. But, but like a lot of these people, though, I mean, Jordan wasn't thick. You know, she um she had A levels and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's like John Lydon. You know, show, showing him this picture here, Johnny Rotten. I was thinking, don't ask me why. When I was walking the dog this morning, I was listening to an item. It was um a really well known male fashion model. I can't remember his name now. But if if you if people know one male, is he called Gavy or something? Gary, something like. That. You, you look at look him up, Chris, while I'm talking. Probably the best known British fashion model, and he he obviously, I think, was probably a kid in the eighties, and he he was saying that when he was up and coming, he worked as a pizza delivery driver, and uh, he was saying that when he was delivering his pizzas, he worked really, really, really hard, and. Uh, him and all the other pizza delivery boys and girls, presumably. They'd actually fight to deliver the last pizza so they could get the tip. Uh, and then he went on to say, I don't think you'd see that now because I think people are much lazier and they wouldn't go for it. And it struck me, I bet you were born during the Thatcher era. It's called David Garvey or something like that. Really, really beautiful David guy. Gandhi. That's the one, David, David Gandhi. Gandhi. David Gandhi. Yeah, you'll love this. After the shocking death of Sid and Nancy, she was 30 years old, and this is what she did. She moved out of that punk scene. She moved back with her parents and Seaford and spent the rest of her life living quietly as a veterinary nurse. I was going to say, why is there a picture of a veterinary nurse? Yeah, and she became well-known in those circles for being a breeder of Burmese cats. And she actually won prizes for breeding Burmese cats. But that's what struck me. She was 30 when suddenly she thought, I'm going to have to change here, which is really interesting, you talking about that. Just as a little departure here. This is, I've got another cutting here. This is from a colour supplement. Your 30s are great until mum and dad get old. Mum and dad are ageing right alongside you. Except instead of sprightly 40 or 50 year olds you remember from childhood, they're entering their long in the tooth 60s or 70s. All of a sudden things change. <laughs> I mean, can you relate to that? Or I was just it... going to say, I do feel like 30s a year, we just hit this wall and we're like, oh, you know what, going out, can't do it anymore. Yeah, time to be sensible. Yeah, we'll have a you in the pub and we'll be home by 12 sometimes even earlier yeah yeah because that's that's what really interests me i mean although i was going to gigs 
you know, I don't think you would have seen me at a Visage gig or, um, you know, a Duran Duran gig or anything like that, because I, I think a massive difference. You, you take the Beatles and even the Stones, bands like that would have had a teen following, but I think the bands of the 80s, Culture Club is another example. I think they were suddenly making music, I don't know how deliberately it was, where a 12-year-old girl or boy would be interested in the music. So you had that massive widening out of your critical audience. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. I think that was a big one. Yeah, I was, think, I was thinking earlier, you can cut this if you want. You know, when I was younger, I mean, up to a point, it was sex and drugs and rock and roll. I was thinking, oh, what's that being replaced with now? And I wrote down Pornhub prescription opioids and Spotify <laughs> what do you make of that very good yeah do you like that do you yeah you have to you have to take that bit out of this a bit to uh... anyway the um, thing that happened one of the first um, developments around that time when punk was dissolving this is this is what I, I think is really interesting you had this style of punk moved into what was called the OI movement, OI. Yeah, this is um, an album by a band called Sham 69, and it's called Tell Us The Truth. And if you look at the cover, it's kind of four guys with a, a, a pinstripe finger wagging at them. They're all in the corner of this room under an interrogation lamp, and they're all looking... Well, they're all trying to look a bit heavy yeah. and aggressive, aren't they? In fact, if you look at them, I mean, a couple of them, they look a bit pussy-like, to be <laughs> honest, don't they? Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it screams that they probably regret that photo now. They're trying to look... Uh, yeah. If you look at if you look at the songs, we've got we've got a fight. The second track is called Rip Off. The next track is called They Don't Understand, and the final one, side one, is Borstal Breakup. Just to give you a vibe. On the other side, this is interesting. They've got a song called Hey Little Rich Boy. Then we've got another one called What About the Lonely, and one called Tell Us the Truth. And this is their kind of uh, attempt at being the Who. It's called. It's never too late. Whose generation? Interestingly, but you—you've you, never heard of Oi. No, I've never heard no. of it. I mean, what Oi was? It was a loose alliance of ultra-aggressive punks. What I find interesting, because you know, I've got this fixation with class. I find class very interesting. I think if you certainly the hippie so-called movement was middle class, unquestionably. I think uh, if you delve into the backstory of a lot of punks, they were pretty middle class and arty as well. You know, the art colleges were very, very important. But I think the thing about Oi, I think it was a genuine working class movement. And it was a kind of loose alliance of ultra aggressive punks, skinheads and disaffected working class kids reacting against, you know, you're going to love this, the perceived commercialisation of punk. They thought punk had sold out, which I've spoken to you about before, you know, about selling out and stuff. But taking you back to that time, as I say, fortunately, I've always had a nose for steering clear of trouble. You had skinheads, you had bother boys. I mean, without me getting pictures up, do do, do you know what the average skinhead, fashionable skinhead would look like? Oh, yeah. Yes. So what, you'd be talking Doc Martens? Yeah, jeans, white T-shirt. Yeah. Maybe suspenders? Maybe, Maybe. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and of course, the crew cut, I, yeah. I guess you'd call it, something like that. But So you, you had bands like Sham 69, I've just 
spoken to you about. I know we, you talked about names, didn't we? You like this one. There's another band called the Foreskins. <laughs> the Foreskins, get it? You had the Cockney Rejects and you had the Angelic Upstarts. They had the big, I like that yeah, one. Angelic. I mean, Sham 69, God bless them. Their leader was a guy called Jimmy Percy, who was quite a loud-mouthed guy, and I think he was just misdirected. They didn't really want the bother boys and the fascists and the National Front people attaching themselves to them, but they did. And they played a gig at the London School of Economics would you believe? I was watching it the other day and the crowd were chanting Sieg Heil. Oh, gee. Oh, yeah? God. There were Nazi stickers and there was extensive damage and it was violent, tough, ugly music. Check it out later. And later on, there's another gig. It's pretty much a London phenomenon, funnily enough, although I didn't finish my story. The Angelic Upstarts. I remember getting a lift once with, with a guy who was like a roadie and tour manager, and he, he was a big, tough guy himself, and he was saying, that's fucking Angelic Upstarts. You know, I had to ferry them round for a week, so it's the worst week of my life. I can't imagine. He said yeah. they were really, they're from Newcastle, I think. They were really, really rough. Uh, you know, it wasn't an act, is what yeah. I'm saying. It wasn't some kind of a pose. They really meant it. Anyway, this, this gig in Southall. It was the Foreskins, another band called The Last Resource, and another one that were quite big at the time called The Business. It led, because you had rioting around the time, it led to a pub where they were playing being burnt to the ground. Oh, wow. That's impressive. After, ex after extensive riots. Because um, what happened was they, they played this gig and it attracted all these kind of unpleasant elements. Southall is, is a very much a mixed race area and you had this group of anti-fascists and there, there was a battle going on. Eventually the pub was burnt down. Can you imagine? I have to Google that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you always ask me about my own um, memories. I remember I was doing some football coaching in 1981. And it was at a time when you had quite serious rioting in Moss Side. Also, I think I'm right in saying you had quite, obviously, quite serious rioting in Tottenham. And you had rioting in places like Bristol. I remember being out on the field with kids and then suddenly i've ne never seen it before there were five or six adults you know not kids running across the park saying get the kids in get the kids in they're coming to trash chalton yeah wow. oh wow you know how weird it's, yeah. it was a real kind of uh, on a kind of petty level i suppose real mood of um okay everybody <laughs> we're gonna go in you didn't say anything you know yeah there's gonna be a riot and i predict <laughs> a riot now i remember we went in and you had to call the parents and you can come and pick johnny up and so on. But i remember later your sister you're talking much much later she was working in town when you had what we call the trainer riots do you remember that yeah yeah Oh, right, yeah. I, I didn't that, know that. That disorder, and it's right. really, really disturbing. It's quite frightening, you know, when, when you are even on the fringes. Um, the, see, the other feature of this, alongside my trips to gigs, I was also a typical working-class lad, I think. I was also very much into football. I'd go and watch games at Stoke, and I obviously would go and watch games at uh, Man City, that's when Man City had the Kipax. You know, it's on a main road. I watch games at uh, United and occasionally I go to places like Blackburn and so on. Um, and football hooliganism, it was it was rife. It was really 
pretty frightening. I remember sitting at Main Road a couple of times and uh, I had complimentary tickets. I was in the main stand and um, you kind of, this was about 10 minutes before the match finished. You could sense this kind of ripple. It's really weird. It's like a herd mentality thing. This ripple was going through the crowd and you could see various characters getting up out the seats and heading for the exits to go and have a rock with the opposing... Mm. Do you know what I mean? Then well, yeah. well, even that Welcome to Wrexham did a whole episode on it. On Football Hooligans. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I, I think they're kind of using that documentary to kind of show Americans ah. what the culture's like. And they did a whole episode on it, didn't they, Chris? Yeah. They did. But I know... Sorry, Chris. I know when I used to go to Stoke, um, this, I think, was before stabbings. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I think people were seriously injured, I'm sure. But at Stoke, there was actually like an area of wasteland behind the ground where you had pitched battles. What's that film? The Football Factory. That's, That's the one, yeah. yeah. It's just crazy how it's all prearranged. Yeah, that's what I yeah. find funny. Yeah. They all know where to go. Yeah. Well, one of my you know friends, it's uh, you know the father of um, one of Charlotte's uh, ex-boyfriends. He was a copper during that era, and he he would go with the United hooligans all over Europe. Huh. And if you chat to him, it, what's really weird is he became their copper. Yeah, they owned him. In what? Wait, he was like, one. He was one of theirs. They understood that he was there to protect them. Oh right. When I've been round his flat, he's got a couple of books written by football hooligans, and they actually mention him a couple oh, of wow. times. Steve-O was our copper. Funnily enough, you know, talking about subways and talking about a, a massively influential film of the time, which was ultimately banned, was Clockwork Orange. Did you ever film Clockwork Orange, yeah. Chris? Well, the classic scene from Clockwork Orange is they're passing through, the, the thugs in it are passing through a subway, aren't they? I'm going yeah. back to subways here. And what do they do, Chris, in that subway? Beat up a homeless person. That's yeah, right. They kick a of... tramp to death yeah, and then I think set him. fire to him. Yeah. But <laughs> it's not funny, is it? But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, Steve-O was telling me he was in, I think it was either Milan or possibly it was definitely in Italy. Where did the ultras come from in Italy? Uh, it was the ultras. Yeah, Milan. Milan. He was in Milan. So it could have been could have been Milan. And he was in the subway system, more or less on his own with a couple of colleagues. And this subway system, it was uh, like a triangular system. You know, you had a subway coming in from the left. You had a subway coming mm. in from the right, and you had another subway which he was on, forming like a Y shape. You with me? Yeah. Yeah. So he was leading a couple of colleagues and a small group of fans in this subway, and then from the left and from the right, all these ultras emerged. And he, he to this day is convinced they would have killed him. Oh, really? It's that serious. But what happened was the United fans, it's like bloody Robin Hood or something. The United fans joined in the fray. And joined him in a massive punch-up in this subway. Yeah, that's how bad it was. I mean, he, he was telling me at one time. This is another story. I have to bring him along for a special violence yeah, violence podcast. Um, another time, he was, b believe it or not, officiating at a Wolves versus Man United game, which would have been, I guess, even back then, a Category A game. You know, it's a game where you know you're going to get quite serious violence. And believe it or not. The other 
crew, they used to call themselves crews back then, the really bad bastards were either West Ham or Leeds. And the nightmare scenario happened. He led all the United fans to the station in Wolverhampton where, naturally, the Wolves fans were all waiting for a dust-up. But it gets worse. Leeds had been playing in the area around the same time and on the platform God. were all these Leeds fans. And he, he was in the middle, he tells me, of this melee where he and his police colleagues were fighting the Leeds and Wolves fans who were fighting each other. And the United fans were standing back, watching him and applauding, saying, great stuff, Kick, put the boot in, mate. But that, that's giving you an idea of what it was like. I remember, I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, I used to go down to, to Stafford quite a lot, and um, back in the day, stations had waiting rooms, and they actually had waiting rooms that were, were quite cosy. You know, you had, you had like a fire in there and such like, and uh, I was sitting there quite comfy, and then these four Leeds fans came in, you know, really heavy bastards, and uh, I remember sitting there having to keep them at bay, do you know, to me so you know get basically getting over i'm a nice guy you know and do you know oh i know some of the leeds players Ooh, you know what i mean these you've probably got these strategies yourself you know strategies to avoid being kicked to death oh, and, yeah uh, yeah and another time just to give you i'm giving you a, i'm painting a picture of the era i caught a train uh blah, blah, blah. again it would have been from manchester and it was going back to london i think it was west ham fans and somebody gave a signal I was a couple of carriages down and they completely and utterly mobbed the refreshments counter and the drinks counter and they completely and utterly trashed it. You know what I mean? The people working there just had to go and stand to one side while they looted it. That's how bad it was. Oh, wow. um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask if you ever experienced it yourself, but I guess like I, well, I, I kept, I kept, to... I kept well out of it. You know, it's, um, that, that's what that's what you had to do. So football hooliganism was pretty pretty bad. A quick question or clarification: When you say said that Steve was their copper, you don't mean the hooligans' copper. You meant just escorted the fans in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, he wasn't. um, They adopted him, weirdly, because he was there for all the games. He became their copper. So he he wasn't, like, corrupt? No, no, no. Yeah, that's that's what I'm getting at. No, no, no. Because it it could be construed as... When you say he was there, no, 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 he was in no, there. Not, no, not at all. No. I mean, I mean, the, funnily enough, you know, I mean, I know, I know you like your pop research. The um, the Oi movement, believe it or not, in twenty twenty three still has its adherence. All the bands I've mentioned, you've got a small group of people out there who would recognise them. But what's really interesting is uh, the the big group apparently i was listening to a couple of their songs last night they're called crown court can you see that you yeah. checked them out later no, i mean i mean jesus christ i mean i mean you've, you've got you've got a union jack blacked out you've got a young guy that's completely shaven headed it looks like something from a Mussolini poster i was gonna say it just seemed very like brutal you've got you've got three people standing very heavy in the background one's arms crossed and the other one Looks a little bit like, uh, accidentally, a bit of a Sieg Heil vibe, doesn't it? But if you check them out, uh, they all weirdly come from a very multicultural area. And they would profess, as most of the oi bands, not to be racist or anything like that. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Was it called oi because of shouting oi? 
That's a very good question. Um, it seems such a weird. If you, I'm, I'm trying to get a copy because um, when I collect records, I get some of them, not because I'm particularly interested in music, but I'm interested in uh, cultural artifacts. Check it out. There, there was um, like a sampler. You probably won't even know what a sampler is. Uh, what used to happen, it happened back in the hippie days. You'd have all these up and coming bands. Yeah, they maybe had an LP out, they possibly didn't. And what you'd get would be, say, 14 songs on an LP by 14 different bands. And that was called a sampler. Back then, you had a sampler and it was called Strength Through Oi. So if you want to know more about Oi, check out the Strength Through Oi, which I think is a double album. I feel like we would call them, how can I say it? Compilation. Compilation, yeah, like a compilation. I can give you um, where the term oi music comes from. Go on, then. So it first comes from music journalist Gary Bushell, who... Wow, Gary Bushell, yeah. um, From the way the Cockney Rejects used to introduce their songs during live shows, which shout oi. Oi, oi, oi! oi. (laughs) Exactly, so that's where it it does come from. Oh, right, okay. Gary Bushell. Now, I want to get into the media later, because what's interesting is, and, and I could do a whole podcast on it, the way in which all these movements were really heavily promoted by the media, particularly the so-called gutter press. Gary Bushell used to write for The Sun, and he had this weird ambivalence, you know, oh, isn't it awful? And then yet at the same time, is let's promote them. Mm. You know, without the media, the Sex Pistols would have got nowhere, nowhere at all. The other one, you know, you like this one, the Oi movement, around this time, you had another subcult, and it was, you're going to like this, it was speeded up pub rock. You had this kind of period where punk was dying and you, you had bands. I, I think pub rock was pretty much a London phenomenon where you had bands like this. I've got an album here. This is a Brinsley Schwartz album. What would pub rock be? Just bands that play in pubs and they you played still in enjoy pubs. your pint. Yeah, but they played um, basically rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Rock and roll has always been central popular music but the band i i really liked i actually saw them were called dr feelgood yeah you've mentioned that so people who listen to these podcasts if you want to check out a little bit of rock and roll early early root stuff check out dr feelgood because the main man was a wonderful character called wilco johnson that's a good name i'm going to come on to wilco johnson in a minute because you will possibly know wilco johnson in another iteration Wilco Johnson. He, um, I saw Wilco Johnson, I saw Dr. Feelgood play another place I used to go to, not often, it was called Dingwalls in London. It's in Camden, I think. And I saw them play and it was a really great night and that was really hot and sweaty and uh, the guy was a brilliant performer. You know, he did the duck walk and all mm. of that stuff. Um, check it out. But what's fascinating, again, comes over as being really thick, but he... I mentioned this for your sister. He actually, he dropped off the course. He studied English at Newcastle University, would you believe? I think he lasted two terms and then gave it up. A few years ago, when we were, I was living in a part of Greater Manchester called Sale, remember Sale? There was a, an art centre there called the Waterside. And a lot, of, a lot of the bands I used to like, what happens is 
the income streams had dried up basically and what they used to do they would go along and tell their story so for example at the waterside you would have had lloyd cole 80s mm. band lloyd cole and the commotions he's a local lad actually really good you would have had um the guy from the stranglers was doing a solo thing yeah maybe, well, maybe they would play a few of the songs as well but i i actually saw wilco johnson at the waterside and what, what's really interesting about him you can follow him up around the time he was diagnosed with late stage pancreatic cancer that would have been i don't know 2013 but what's interesting about the guy he elected not to receive chemotherapy or anything and if you look at interviews with the guy they, the doctors gave him uh i think nine to ten months to live and then in 2014 so when I saw him at the waterside, he would have had this tumour. And he was laughing and joking about it. I think it's a generational thing. I reckon he's probably, well, he's dead now, five years younger than me, say, something like that. But he was toughing it out. He, um, he discovered he had this tumour and uh, they removed it. And do, you know what, do you know how big this tumour was? You know, you know what a kilogram is, don't you? A kilogram is, bag a, is, a, ba is a bag of sugar. This tumour was a three kilogram tumour. Wow. What? Where, where was it? Pancreas. Pancreas, pancreatic, yeah. And uh, now, this is a question. Wilco Johnson also, I don't know what era, but you can tell me this, he also had a part in Game of Thrones. I reckon yeah. he was maybe in one episode or two episodes. This is a really good pub question, isn't yeah. it? Talking about pub rock. He played Sir Lynn Payne, a mute executioner. Uh, yeah. He's a very distinctive character. This is a, this is up. very big, very tall, bald head. Yeah. Bit like Frankenstein. Yeah. He played a mute executioner, probably because he was suffering. Do, do you remember him? No, I'd have to see a picture. What, what, when you see, is looking at one. Yeah, when you see the picture, you'll recognise it. Sir Lynn Payne. You can show Russell a picture quickly. The other pub rockers, uh, Brindley Swartz, I've mentioned. Squeeze. Do you know Squeeze? I know Squeeze. Do you ever watch um, the one and only music programme that's one and on with Jules Holland? Oh, yeah. I don't you know, really watch you, it, but I know of it. You don't watch yeah. it. I think the, the, the Jules Holland programme is possibly for older people, I don't know, although they have modern bands on it. I mean, he was massive, but he co-presented a programme called The Tube, which I'll talk about next week. And I actually saw some of these pub rockers at college. You know, I like this one, a pub rock band. They were called Ducks Deluxe. Oh, <laughs> oh. And another one, which were fucking awful. I remember seeing them at a college with about 70 people. They were called Pterodactyl and the Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> eh? Back in the day, just to link this to local history, I, this is my last comment on football hooliganism. Just before I met your mum, she, she actually has been to this house a few times. I lived just behind a really vast, barn-like, half-timbered 1930s pub. And it was called the Snooty Fox on the fringes of Widdenshaw. I mean, you can, you can have a whole podcast on... A, a pub What I call it, podcast or puscast or podcat. I think pubcast. Well, on on podcast, pub. OK. On pubs, because during the 1930s, don't forget, not many people had cars. A lot of people were commercial travellers. They built a string of these massive bloody pubs. 
The snooty fox, um, as I remember, it had 14 pool tables and they also had bands and discos there. I'm giving you an idea of who played what there. And um, apparently, if you go into the history of the snooty fox, you, you had people like um, Freddie and the Dreamers and Billy J. Kramer played there. But when I knew it, 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 it they had the occasional gig. And um, but the big thing was, it was it was the boozer. Your girlfriend's dad will be interested in this. It was the boozer. If you were an away fan and you were heading for the motorways, it was the boozer where all the football coaches stopped, uh, and you'd frequently have massive fights on the, <laughs> on the grass outside until it was stopped. Yeah. If, there, if there's any listeners out there who um, followed the Manchester scene, if you want, I mean, I, I also there's another. Have you been there? It's called the Cavalcade in Didsbury. What I'm saying is, groups playing in pubs ain't unusual. It was a way of making a few bob. Do you know the Cavalcade in Didsbury? You know, you never no. go there. I mean. For all you Manchester listeners, I mean, going back to that era, I saw, indeed knew a couple of them, I saw a band called The Smirks, saw a band called The Bicycle Thieves, I kind of did spring, another band called Any Trouble, which were kind of poor man's um, Elvis Costello. It was, uh, I'd say, I was, in my thir- I was entering my 30s when I met your mum, you see, and I think it was a bit of a dangerous age. And, of course, around this time, you still had rock music and you still obviously had heavy metal but for that you'd have to ask my brother so all these kind of things were going on okay so can we draw a veil over it now yeah i can see your mother is making a a wreath in the back room that's telling isn't it a wreath just for listeners it's a christmas wreath it's not because i'm dying yeah very very (laughs) nice okay so I hope that's okay. So next week I want to talk about the rise of new wave, the futurist movement. And I'll give you a little clue about what people like me, who would be very much on the fringes heading into their 30s, would be wearing. Well, and, be uh, interesting. Just, just for Chris, we'll have a few film references here. I'm going to reference Cabaret. Do you know the movie Cabaret? I do. Can, can I just add, I do like films, Dad. You always yeah, like them to Chris. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, okay. It's because it's part of my profession. I know, yeah. just because Chris does it professionally. Okay. I'm being filmist here, but um, I, and I'm going to be I'm going to be talking about the rise and rise of uh, androgyny, and uh, I might have a reference to. Um, I remember I studied sociology at university. I remember the most popular units were all about deviance. You know, we're doing deviance next week. Oh, great! Isn't <laughs> what I'm saying? It's a uh, so next week we'll be embracing polymorphous perversity. So check that one out. R- Russell thinking, what the fuck yeah. is polymorphous perversity? It's Freudian. Okay, so I'm going to go there now. So goodbye, Peter. Goodbye, Paul. Goodbye, saints and sinners all. And goodbye, listeners, as we leave it there this week with the promise of delving into the fascinating world of new wave music in our next episode. Once again, thank you for being a part of another year with Peter. Apologies again for the slight delay. Chris and I are actively exploring ways to enhance the podcast, both in terms of delivery and the content format. One exciting prospect we're always floating around and want to get it going is introducing interviews with individuals who grew up around the same time as my dad, perhaps even Steve, as mentioned in this episode. Your thoughts and suggestions mean the world to us and we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on our X, formerly Twitter account, 
a pint with Peter, or if social media isn't your preference, drop us an email at a pint with Peter at gmail.com. Well, everyone, I'm off to make myself innocent of underwear. So on to the next one. <laughs>